good morning. Uh, please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. As you turn to Luke chapter 9 with me, I just invite you to attend our electives this evening. Uh, there's some here at, uh, it will, some will be at camp, one will be at Camp Good News, uh, others will be at Living Hope, and other, others will be at Bethany Baptist Church this evening at 6 o'clock. And so just encourage you to come out for those this evening and continue our, our time of learning about God together, great time of fellowship on Sunday evenings. And so if you've not availed yourself to that opportunity, I would encourage you to do so. It's great to be back with you this morning in Luke chapter 9. And if you'd stand with me as we read God's word together. Luke chapter 9, I'm going to be beginning in verse 57 and reading from the English Standard Version. Luke chapter 9, verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Uh, to another, he said, follow me, but he said, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You may be seated. God encourages through the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, you are a God worthy of worship. Father, help us as we look at this text this morning to open our hearts, that you would open our hearts and help us to understand the, the depth of worship that you require from us and give us the strength to do that, the desire to do that, and may our lives be a, an act of worship that brings honor and glory to your name. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Idolatry permeates our lives in ways that I believe we don't fully comprehend. Sometimes we think of idolatry as, as worshiping something that's not God, and, and certainly that's a component to idolatry. When a person fashions an idol for themselves and, and bows down to that and worships it, it's idolatry, of course. And when a person prays to a statue, that's idolatry. And when a person sets their affections upon their, their work or sets their affections upon their, their family or sets their affections upon sports or, or whatever it is in a way that our affections are only designed to be given toward God, yes, of course, that's idolatry. But let me suggest to you this morning that idolatry is far more pervasive than that definition of idolatry. In fact, if you'd like to turn to Deuteronomy 4, I, I invite you to do so. In Deuteronomy chapter, keep your fingers in Luke chapter 9, but in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses is talking to the people about going into the land that God has promised them, and he's talking about God's commandments and his laws and his statutes that reveal the character of God, and the people are to take these commandments, these laws and statutes, they're to go in the land, and they're to live them out, and as they live them out, people are supposed to understand the character of God as they see God's people being obedient to his commandments. And then, 
in verse 15, listen to what Moses says as he's talking about idolatry. Deuteronomy 4, verse 15. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure. And then he goes and he describes all these different types of things that they're not to do in terms of of what they're supposed to worship. Then he says in verse 23, Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. And then we come to verse 24, which we've sung about and seen on the screen as it's quoted in Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 24, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Let me suggest to you that the essence, the heart of idolatry is worshiping anything that's not God and calling it God. It's not just bowing down to this statue. It's not just worshiping something else that you know is not God. Idolatry, the heart of idolatry, is worshiping something that is not God and calling it God. The Israelites here knew some of the things about God, and the danger to them was to fashion for themselves a God that wasn't truly God and call it Yahweh God. Therefore, the implications for us, there is a real danger that a person could come in to our church, come in through these entrances, sit down, and engage in worship, singing the same songs that everyone else is singing, and be practicing idolatry. Because their conception about who God is, is so wrong. A person could listen to the same sermon, could sing the same songs, and be engaged in idolatry because they don't understand the true character of God. And the God that they're singing to is a God that is much different than the God of Scripture. It's a God of their own fashioning. That is a real danger in the church today. One of the ways that this danger, I believe, manifests itself most prominently is as we present the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel message? The the gospel message, the good news is this. You and I are separate from God. We're separated from God because of our sin. And not only are we separated from God because of our sin, we are in line of God's wrath. We're in danger of facing, yes, the eternal wrath of God in hell. That's the danger that we're in. The good news The good news is that Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God for you and me, and through faith in Jesus Christ alone, not on our works whatsoever, but because of our faith in Jesus Christ alone, we are rescued from the wrath of God and brought into relationship with God. The the righteous died for the unrighteous in order to bring us to God. That's the gospel. Now, as the church presents the gospel today, We present a perverted view sometimes of who God is. It becomes an idolatrous notion of who God is, in fact. So, for example, the goal of the church becomes to to just get bigger and have more people in the church. And so a person says, I want to worship a God. 
I want to worship a God that's judgmental. I want to worship a God that hates all the sins that I hate, but is really kind of cool with the sins that I'm involved in. And the church says this, hold on, here you go, that's our God, worship it. Or a person says, you know what, I want to worship a God that's not all that hung up on holiness whatsoever. And the church says, hold on, that's our God, worship him. Or a person says, I, I want to worship a God that is going to, to rescue me from the circumstances that I'm in. I'm in these circumstances that are unpleasant. I want a, a peaceful life. I don't want to be in these circumstances anymore. I'm not so much concerned with heart transformation as situational transformation. I want a God that's going to rescue me from this situation. The church says, we got a God like that. Here you go, worship him. A person says, I want a God that's hip and edgy and, and concerned with pushing the boundaries. That's the kind of God I want. And the church says, here you go, worship him. It's idolatry. It's idolatry. We become so consumed, I believe, the church has become so consumed with getting people in its doors that they're willing to offer people a false God in order to get them to worship. Exodus 32, Exodus 32, what happens? The people come to Aaron and they want a different God. And what does Aaron say? Here you go, here's a different God. The passage that we're coming to this morning, in the passage that we're coming to this morning, Jesus obliterates this false perception of how we're to do ministry of how we're to call people to worship God. Jesus, in Luke chapter 9, destroys the notion that we should cater our gospel message to the ears of those who hear it in terms of watering down who God is and what he requires from them. Jesus obliterates that notion. Here in Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62, instead of Jesus making it easy for people to follow God, in order... And instead of Jesus making it easy for people to decide to enter into a relationship with him through discipleship, he gives them reasons not to follow him. He gives them three reasons here in verses 57 through 62 why they may not want to engage in the discipleship that he's calling them to. Remember earlier in Luke chapter 9, Jesus has laid out the terms of discipleship. The terms of discipleship are simply losing your life. Now as people come to him, he gives them some reasons they may not desire to follow him. And each of these reasons that he gives them relate to loss. What Jesus is going to say in these verses are, is this. Discipleship involves certain loss. But I believe what Jesus is saying is that in that loss, you discover value. The central point of the text, I believe, is Jesus is saying Discipleship involves certain loss that reveals the infinite value of me. As a person begins to gauge the cost of following Jesus and realizes what it will cost in order to obtain him, they gain a deeper understanding of his infinite value. Discipleship involves certain loss that reveals the infinite value of the person of Jesus Christ. That's what I believe we see in the text this morning. So let's go ahead and turn together to verses 57 and 58. And here we see reason number one, not to follow Jesus. Reason number one we see in verses 57 through 58, and I'll read it and then we'll look at the, the reason. Verse 57, verse 57, he says this, 
as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Matthew tells us that this person was a scribe, and so the idea, remember, Jesus has set his heart toward going to Jerusalem, and as he's going, this person tells him, Jesus, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. The scribe tells Jesus, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. It's a very commendable statement for this person to make. We've seen earlier in Luke chapter 7 and Luke chapter 6 that sometimes scribes were very antagonistic toward Jesus, but this scribe at least has a, a nice thing to say. He said, look, I recognize your authority. I recognize that you're a teacher. And so I'm willing to follow you wherever you go. Oftentimes, people would listen to Jesus preach and teach, and there'd be these large crowds, and Jesus would go to one area, and these people would listen to him, and sometimes he'd go to a different area, and other people would listen to him. And what this scribe is saying is, look, I don't want to be one of the casual people in the audience. I don't want to be just kind of one of the hangers-on. I want people to see that I am your disciple. I want a more intentional relationship with you. Wherever it is that you go in your ministry, I'm going to go with you, and I'm going to be recognized as your disciple. That's what I want in our relationship. It's a commendable statement, right? This scribe, where other scribes are antagonistic to Jesus, this scribe recognizes his authority and wants to be seen as Jesus' disciple. And Jesus doesn't say, hey, that's that's super duper. You, I'm so pleased that you're, you have some good intentions. That might be my tendency whenever a person says, hey, I want to follow Jesus. You want to encourage, hey, that's, that's great, that's great. Jesus understands the heart of this person and lays out some hard words. Instead of encouraging him in this idea of following after him, Jesus recognizes his heart problem and says this. He says this in verse 58. He says, the birds of the air, or foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests. In other words, the animal kingdom has territory that it can refer to as its own. A fox has this hole that it can say, this is my territory, this is my location in which I live. A bird, the birds of the air, has a nest that it can call its own, its own territory, its own locale. But the Son of Man has no place that he can lay his head. The Son of Man, me, Messiah, has no location that he can call his own physical location. I don't have this. Think about the context in which Jesus is saying these words. Remember what happened last time we were in the Gospel of Luke two weeks ago, what we looked at? What happened is he went into Samaria. In Samaria, the people wouldn't let him stay there. In Luke chapter 4, what happened? His own hometown kicked him out. Next chapter, in Luke chapter 10, we're going to see that the people of Capernaum, kind of his, his new headquarters, uh, reject his message as well. Jesus has no physical location that he can call his own, that he can say, this is my location. These are the physical resources upon which I'm depending to sustain my ministry. Jesus doesn't have that. And what he's telling the scribe is, look, if you want to be like me, if you want to follow me around and be considered one of mine and live like me, like a disciple lives like his master, his teacher, here's the news for you. Disciples lose their possessions. That's reason number one 
not to follow Jesus. Disciples, those who are going to be like Jesus, lose the ability to rely upon their own physical possessions. That's Jesus' message to this scribe, and it's the message to those of us who would desire to follow Jesus in discipleship as well. Sometimes, following Jesus means that you're literally going to lose your access to those physical possessions that you previously had access to. There are people in the world today, believers in the world today, who have had to make the decision, am I going to follow Jesus, or am I going to maintain my access to the physical possessions that I have? Which am I going to choose? And there are believers in the world today who have literally had to choose, I'm going to follow Jesus instead of keep my home, my clothes, my family, all those things. But every disciple of Jesus needs to enter into this calculation. Am I, as I embrace Jesus and discipleship, renouncing all claims that I have on the physical things that have been given to me in this life? As I decide to follow Jesus, am I renouncing all claims on this material world? Like Jesus, am I saying, nothing that I have, nothing that I have access to is truly mine. I've been reading a a very interesting book. I haven't gotten all the way through it. I, I picked it up a couple weeks ago. And just, it was just going to be a late night read, just going to read a couple pages and got really into the book, made it about a third of the way through before falling asleep. Uh, I look forward to picking it up again sometime. It's called Radical. Maybe some of you have read it. Radical by David Platt. Radical by David Platt. And he, he tells this story, a couple interesting things in this book related to discipleship and renouncing this physical world. He says that he was preparing for a trip to the Sudan and as he picked up a Christian news publication, preparing this for his trip to Sudan, he picks up this Christian news publication, and on one side of the front page is an article entitled, First Baptist Church Unveils $23 Million New Building. He read the article about the new sanctuary and all, all the neat things about this, this building. And then he looked at the other article on the front page. And this article was entitled, Baptist Relief Effort to Sudan. And so he got kind of excited about, this was in 2004, so he got excited about what the Baptists were doing to, to help out this, this, uh, this humanitarian crisis. And as you read through the article, remember, one side it says, $23 million new church, said, uh, Baptist Relief Effort sends $5,000 to Sudan. He said, something is radically wrong in the church today. Something is radically wrong in our thinking. And he argues, and I I agree with him, is that it begins with this wrong understanding we've given of the gospel. Listen to what he says as as he talks about the gospel. He says, here are some phrases that we use to describe the gospel to people. He says, we define the gospel this way. Ask Jesus to come into your heart. Invite Jesus to come into your life. Pray this prayer. Sign this card, walk down this aisle, accept Jesus as your personal Savior. Now, some of those phrases can be used to describe deeper truths, but those phrases in themselves don't adequately describe the gospel, do they? 
Then he says this, our attempt to reduce the gospel to a shrink-wrapped presentation that persuades someone to say or pray the right thing back to us is not appropriate. That is why none of these man-made catchphrases are in the Bible. You will not find a verse in Scripture where people are told to bow your heads, close your eyes, and repeat after me. You will not find a place where a superstitious sinner's prayer is even mentioned. And you will not find an emphasis on accepting something. We have taken the infinitely glorious Son of God who endured the infinitely terrible wrath of God and who now reigns as the infinitely worthy Lord of all and we've reduced him to a poor, puny Savior who's just begging for us to accept him. I believe that Platt is exactly right. The gospel message isn't, hey, Jesus coming and saying, please, please accept me. Please be my friend. The gospel message is this. You and I are standing in front of an immense dam that's about to burst. We're about to be overwhelmed with the waters, with the wrath of God. And the gospel is Jesus Christ is like this hole that, that opens up in the ground before us and, and, and absorbs all of the water, absorbs all the, the wrath of God within him. And now you and I, through faith in Jesus, can be reconciled to God. That's the gospel message. That's a radical message. And as we accept that message, it radically affects how we view our entire lives. Platt goes on and he says this, so, so often we say this, here's this Jesus, please accept him. And then we say this about our church services. We, we have our church services where there's this, this entertainment factor, there's this uh, charming pastor there's this uh, beautiful worship music and uh, the the goal is get someone in get get them to accept just the tiniest truth about God and then try to grow them in worship but don't tell them all the bad things about the Christian life yet and then keep them coming back give them comfortable chairs those chairs are very nice aren't they Uh, give them comfortable chairs and then as you give them comfortable chairs give them things to do in the church and Platt asks this question it's a question for us as well Would you still come to church if there weren't the comfortable chairs? What if there wasn't this nice, comfortable building for us to meet in? What if we were meeting at the farmhouse in the barn? Would the desire for the worship of God still so consume you that you'd be willing to trade all those things in order to worship God? What drives you to engage in worship of the living God? Here's what Jesus is telling this scribe who's coming to him. He's saying this. I'm more valuable than physical resources, than having a home, than having access to physical resources. And he's forcing this person who's coming to him, wanting discipleship, to make this calculation. Which is more valuable, the physical world or Jesus Christ? And as he forces this person to make that calculation, he's forcing them to understand his infinite value. Now, we've, we've talked frequently about physical possessions and how in the Gospel of Luke and in our lives, physical possessions are a barometer of our spiritual health. How we view the things that God has entrusted to us says much about our spiritual well-being. So I'm not going to belabor this, but let me just give you three questions of application as we think about this reason not to follow Jesus. Disciples lose their physical possessions So here are three questions. Question number one, how willing are you, 
how willing are you to have your physical life affected by following Jesus? How much discomfort are you willing to endure physically in terms of your access to physical possessions? How comfortable are you, how far are you willing to go in letting go of those things as you pursue Jesus? What discomforts are you willing to endure in terms of following Jesus instead of clinging to those physical things that God has entrusted you with? I read an article this last week from a, uh, an article, uh, a, a publication entitled Fiscal Times, and it said that an average family of four that makes $250,000 is in the red right now. You, you stick them in eight different locations, a typical family of four, and you take the average that each uh, family of four spends on various things, and, you, and a family of four making $250,000 a year is in the red. How willing are you to alter your lifestyle and say, not only am I willing to forgo the ease of life right now when I'm, when I'm young or when I'm middle-aged or whenever in order to, to later live in, in comfort, but how willing am, am, am I throughout my entire life here on earth to forego comfort in order to pursue the kingdom of God? How far are you willing to go? That's the first question. A second question, second question, do you view everything you have as belonging to God? That's a, a conscious decision that I believe the believer must make as he or she decides to follow Jesus. Look, these physical possessions that I had are, are nice, and I'm, I'm glad God has entrusted to me, them to me, but they're not mine anymore. They're God's. And now these are God's to use as he would see fit, which brings us to the third question of application related to the second one. Are you using your physical possessions the way that God would have you? Are you using the money that God has entrusted to you the way that God would use it if it was his? I believe that most of us in this room are so I hesitate to use the term blessed, but so, so many of us have such access to physical resources that it's hard for me to imagine a person being unable to, to tithe. You know, tithing is, uh, I believe, not necessarily a biblical mandate for the believer, but it's certainly a great place to start of, of giving at least 10% of one's income to local church ministries. I find it hard to imagine that, that we're in a state where we can't do that, and I believe that's a good goal. And in our family, and I encourage you and your family to, to pursue beyond that. How are we using our physical resources in order to engage in gospel kingdom work? It's a great barometer to our health. We've talked about it before. Let's move on to the second reason that we encounter in verses 59 through 60. Reason number two, not to follow Jesus, verse 59. To another... Jesus said, follow me. So we've just seen this interaction with the scribe. Now in reason number two, we see this Jesus talking to another person saying, follow me, you, follow me. And listen to how the person responds. The person says, uh, first, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. He's not saying, I'm not going to follow you, Jesus. But he's saying, I I've got this, this obligation that trumps what you're calling me to do. I've got a funeral. Now, I, I don't know about you, but in my work and in most people's works, uh, most people's social obligations, funerals trump other things that people are, are asking you to do. It's a good excuse, by the way, if you're ever looking to get out of something. I've got a funeral. I'd love to go. 
needs to be true, though. This guy says, look, look, I've got a funeral. I've got to go and bury my father. Now, there's three possible interpretations here of what he's saying. Some people say, well, like, his dad has just passed away, and he's, he's like, on his way to the funeral. He's like, Jesus, I've got the casserole for afterwards. I've got to get to the funeral. I don't think that's what's taking place here. Remember, in this culture, when a person died, the, the, the burial would be immediate. And so I don't think that's what he's saying. Other interpreters have said, well, what this guy is telling Jesus is, my father's going to die eventually. First, let me fulfill my f- familial obligations, and, and then I'll go and, and follow you. And I think it's more immediate than that. What I believe this person is saying is that my, my father is very ill. He's on his deathbed. And, and first, let me fulfill my obligations to my father. And after I've fulfilled these, these obligations that I have to my parents, then I'll, I'll go and I'll follow you. This was a huge thing in this culture. There was an expectation upon this man to take care of his parents. A person that wouldn't take care of his parents was viewed as very suspect in this culture. They were, they were outcasts. And a person that failed to take care of his father also risked losing his inheritance. And so there, there's going to be a loss for this person if they go and follow Jesus, not only in society's eyes, but also in his parents' eyes, this was going to be a real blow to his relationship with his family and with those outside looking in at his family. And so what this person is, is telling Jesus is, look, let me first fulfill my obligation to my father, and then I will follow you. In fact, in this culture, the obligation to one's parents was trumped by only one relational obligation, one's relational obligation to God. In fact, you can write down Levit- Leviticus 21, Leviticus 21, verses 10 and 11, the chief priest, the chief priest is not to go near any dead bodies, verse 11 says, nor make himself unclean, even for his father or for his mother. Uh, that's Leviticus 21, verse 11, Numbers 6, verses 6 and 7, talks about a Nazarite, a person who takes a Nazarite vow. It says, all the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a body. Then Numbers 6, 7 says, not even for his father or for his mother, for brother or sister, if they die, shall he make himself unclean because his separation to God is on his head. So in this culture, the Jewish culture, only one relational obligation trumped one's obligation to one's parents, and that was one's relational obligation to God. And so what Jesus says is this in verse 60, leave the dead to bury their own dead. Let those, I believe he's he's speaking ironically here, let those who are spiritually dead bury those who are physically dead. Instead, here's the greater priority to you. For you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Your relational obligation to me is greater even than your obligation to your family. And that brings us to reason number two, not to follow Jesus if you're so inclined. Disciples lose their families. If one is going to follow after Jesus Christ, one's relationship with one's family suffers loss. Because one's relationship with mom and dad becomes subservient to one's relationship with, to Jesus Christ. And one's obligations to Jesus Christ and following him fully in discipleship trump 
one's obligation to mom and dad. Family, friends, loved ones all become subservient to Jesus Christ. Disciples lose their families. Some of you, some of you have had to come to that fork in the road, haven't you? Where mom and dad have wanted you to go this way. And yet, very clearly, you've sensed through God's word and the leading of his spirit that God is calling you this direction. And maybe it's not even mom and dad saying, we want you to go down this path. But there's some sort of relational uh, aspect with your family that if you don't continue down this path, you're going to lose out on the closeness and relationship, and and it hurts. And yet, you know your obligation to God is far greater than your obligation to your family. I can remember this, this text was a very influential text in our family's life as we decided what God was calling us to. When we had originally come to the central Illinois area, we thought, okay, we'll, we'll come up here to this frozen tundra for five, six years and minister at Bethany Baptist Church and enjoy the fellowship there. And then, and then we'll go back to Texas and, and be with family where we're, you know, we're not so much fish out of water. As we finished our, begin to make, enter that next phase of life where we're going to have to make some decisions about what we're going to do, we, we realized as much as we love our families, and as hard as it is to say we're not going to be near you anymore, it, it was very clear this is the family that God has called us to, this, this church and these people. And as much as we love our parents, disciples lose their families. It's far more important, there's far more joy in being obedient to God than in in pursuing family relationships. Family relationships are the strongest relationships you're going to have in your your life. They're they're, they're people that very often will will affect you in very strong ways. Even if you have a strained relationship with a a father or a mother, that's a, a powerful influence in your life. If a casual acquaintance stops talking to you, you don't really think that much about it. A parent or a mother or sister or brother stops talking to you, there's, you notice it. It's not the way things are supposed to be. Let me give you some points of, of application here. First of all, let me give you some application for children. For the, those of you who have a, a mom or a dad or, or other family that is very influential in your life. The first application I'd give you is, is this, uh, honor your father and mother without disobeying God. Ephesians 6 tells us this, that even, I believe, even adult children have this obligation to to honor your father and mother. There's a sphere of responsibility that you have to your parents. And within that sphere, as long as you're operating within that sphere of, of where your parents' authority lies and where you're supposed to honor them, do it. Children, this also means sacrificing of self for the benefit of your family. And so if it's an issue of preference, maybe a Mom and dad want to do one thing for Christmas. You want to do something else with your family for Christmas. Or there's Thanksgiving or there's some sort of thing that you like to do. Sacrifice of yourself, honor mom and dad, and do what you can to demonstrate that honor through self-sacrifice within that sphere of their authority and their honor that is due them. Children, honor your parents without disobeying God. However, 
I would also say this. Make life decisions based not upon what mom and dad want ultimately, but upon what God wants. Make life decisions based not on what is going to please mom and dad, but what is going to please God. Who you're going to marry, uh, who you're going to, uh, where you're going to work, where you're going to church, what ministries you're going to do, all those things are done in view of pleasing God and not pleasing mom and dad ultimately, although certainly seek their counsel. I would also say this to to children, uh, don't be afraid of causing kingdom, God-glorifying waves. So often, uh, those of us who are parents know this, we are really good manipulators, right? (laughs) Okay, I, I guess you can do that if you want me to die early. No, no, go ahead. I love you, but you got your own thing to do. I guess you can do that, but I don't know what your brother's going to do. He's hanging by a thread right now, and if, if you move, I, I don't know if he's going to make it. But go, go, do your thing. You know, you are not responsible for the sin that other people choose to commit. And very often, parents try to manipulate and say, look, if you do this, this is going to happen, or I'm going to do this, or our relationship's going to be strained. Don't buy into it. Don't buy into it. Honor them, love them, do everything you can to sacrifice and prefer them, but at the, at the end of the day, glorify God with your decisions and say, I'm willing to risk loss in our relationship as I follow God. That is a hard thing to say. It's a hard thing to do. Parents, here's some applications for you from this passage. Uh, parents, Don't make ministry decisions based on what's going to be easy for your kids. Don't say, boy, we'd we'd like to be involved in this ministry, but but man, they need to get, our kid needs to get 9.25 hours of sleep every night, or if we do this, it it might affect a little Timmy's uh, college fund, and and we don't want to affect his college fund, and if we do this, it may mean loss for our kids in this area, and we just don't want to hurt our kids. Hey, you know what? It's good for them. Let the little runts suffer a little bit, right? You know, <laughs> you think about exercise, right? Imagine if your goal was, was to run 10 miles. And you said, but I don't want to hurt myself, and so every time I start to get a little bit tired, I'm going to stop. How far would you get? Not very. But a person who's wanting to, to run a, a longer distance is going to run and, and push themselves and push themselves and push themselves. Your children need to be pushed spiritually. And so allow them to suffer for the kingdom and encourage it and promote it and seek it out. Allow them to experience spiritual and physical discomfort. And also, related to this, another application for parents, train them to follow God and not you. When they're young and you talk about what you want them to do, be very clear about, hey, these are some things our family does, and here's what God's word says a person is to do. 
And whenever you're disciplining them, saying, look, here's from God's word why I'm doing this. This isn't mom and dad's whims. This is what God's word says. And here's why I'm correcting you and training you in the right way to go. And as your children grow up and make God-glorifying decisions, support them fully in it. I told you that this was one of the hard things for us, this, this passage. And I'll tell you, having parents who are excited about their children moving away from home and not seeing them is a little hurtful, but no, it's very encouraging, right? They're excited about what God is is doing in our lives, and they love this church, and so they're excited about us being here. That is incredibly encouraging as we lose them in some senses. Talked to my mom just last night, and uh, they've you know, we've been trying to connect, and we've had trouble connecting, and, and she said, you know, we miss you wor- more than words can describe, and we're looking so forward to having you, but every time she says that to me, she says, but we're so glad that you're at the church that you're at. You know? That's the right response of a parent who understands this principle that disciples lose their families as they follow Jesus. Third reason not to follow Jesus, third reason, verse 61 Third person comes to Jesus and says, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Now, okay, I get the physical possession things. I understand, okay, if I've sacrificed those to follow Jesus, I kind of get the burial thing. It seems a little tough, but okay, surely this third one, that seems incredibly reasonable. All this guy is saying is, look, I'm going to follow you. I'm just going to go home real quick and say farewell. Surely... Surely Jesus is going to say, okay, go ahead. After all, Elisha, when he asked Elijah, when Elijah asked Elisha to follow him, Elisha said, let me go say goodbye. And Elijah said, you know, go for it. So surely Jesus is going to say that, right? Well, let's look what he says. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is for the kingdom of, is fit for the kingdom of God. That sounds like a no to me. <laughs> that brings us to our third reason not to follow Jesus. Reason number three, disciples lose everything. Why did Jesus say no? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe Jesus understood this person's heart. Maybe Jesus knew if this person goes back home and says bye, they're going to persuade him not to go. And so maybe he recognizes this person's heart. Or maybe there, it was just an issue of timing. There's something that needs to take place right away. And so he needed the disciple to leave. There was no time to even say goodbye. I don't know. But I do know this. When you decide to follow Jesus, you lose not only the great big things like funerals and, and physical possessions, Jesus' authority extends even to loss of little tiny things like saying goodbye. And as you and I make the decision to follow Jesus, what we're saying is not only, God, I'm giving you all these big things, we're giving him every corner, every nook, every cranny of our being. And when God says no, we say okay. When God says go, we say yes, sir, right away. Disciples lose everything. If you want to follow Jesus, understand this, it costs everything. This verse, verse 62, I've I've mentioned this before, was a very powerful verse in in my life as well. Whitney and I were 
at a stage of ministry at Bethany Baptist where we were very discouraged. And by the way, if you're discouraged in ministry at Bethany Baptist Church or Bethany Community Church, you're a wimp, okay? I was a wimp. I was a wimp. In fact, I, I uh, went running with uh, Matt. We, we referred to each other as, as running buddies. And uh, I, I told him, I said, even though we ran together twice, I said, uh, I'm leaving Bethany Baptist. I'm, I'm quitting. I'm going to turn in my resignation tomorrow, and, and I'm going back. I'm, go, I'm going back and finishing seminary somewhere else. I just can't handle ministry. And so I went into Pastor Rich's office. I told uh, Pastor Rich, I, I said, uh, "Woe is me! Life is so terrible." Blah blah blah. Rich is reading a book, and, and I'm not even sure he's paying attention to me. And uh, Rich says these words. He says, "Okay, uh, no one who puts his hand, hand to the plow and then looks back is fit for the kingdom of God," and then goes back to his reading okay, I will go back to work. (laughs) Disciples lose everything. Disciples, why does God do this? Why is God so greedy? Seriously, I mean, he's got everything. Why not just let us have a little something? Why not, what's a house to God? Who cares, God? It's a house. This last week, we were at a water park. And you would think people at a water park would be the happiest people in the world. I mean, an amusement park is just designed to bring you amusement. Everything is designed to make, here's a slide, wee, go down the slide, here's some water, have fun. You would think people at a location that's just designed for their amusement would be the happiest people in the world. They're not. You can have this beautiful wave pool going on, but uh, they don't have the right tube that they want. They want your tube. People, this is the craziest thing in the world. People are in, just in such a hurry to get to the top of a slide, and then they're in a hurry to get to the bottom of the slide, and then they're in a hurry to get back to the top. What's the deal? They're very unhappy people, as I found out personally. And I told our children, I said, children, do you see what's happening here? And, and watch our own hearts here, too. We're in an environment where we're, we're seeking self-pleasure. In, our, in things. I said that is a losing proposition. And if your focus on joy is on these things you're pursuing that, that aren't God, it's not going to happen. No matter how high the slide is, no matter how short the line is, no matter how big the waves are, there's going to be something that brings you misery. So why does Jesus, why does Jesus take everything from us? Why does he want our house? Why does he want our clothes? Why our car? Here's why. Because he wants us to see the infinite value of Jesus. It is a loving thing to do. And as the disciple loses everything and says, look, all of weighs the options and and says, all of this is nothing compared with Jesus. The value of Jesus becomes evident in their lives. And they gain that which is of true significance and brings true joy. Discipleship means certain, absolute, total loss. And it's in that loss that we gain a Savior of infinite value. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that we can obtain him. And Father, thank you for calling us to lose all things so that we can understand his value more. We pray that you would sustain us in your call to 
follow after you. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.